Method to the Madness is next. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefer, and today I'll be talking with novelist and essayist Ayelet Waldman. We'll be talking about her new book, A Really Good Day, How Microdosing Made a Mega Difference in My Mood, My Marriage, and My Life. Such a pleasure to be here. After I first got lost on campus, which I will probably do till the end of time. It's and a, you used to teach on campus. Yeah. You taught here at the Bolt Law School for seven semesters. I did. I want to talk about your new book. I really liked it. And, I'm so glad. Um, the superficial level of it, it's a diary of you microdosing for 30 days. But yes. But it's so much more than that. It's about how the war on drugs has failed, drug reform policy. It's about psychedelic research. It's about your family. Yes. It's about mood disorders and how they affect family. So you're a legal professional. Yes. And you were a, a federal public defender, a criminal defense lawyer. Tell us the journey of how you got to a Schedule One illegal right. drug for your mood disorder. So it was really a matter of desperation. So I have a mood disorder, but I have a mood disorder that was for many, many years very well controlled. You know, I'm not one of those people who doesn't take her medicines. I took my medicine and I took it regularly. My mood disorder was diagnosed as premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And the easiest way to understand that is just PMS on steroids. It took a while to get that diagnosis. I had a lot of misdiagnoses first, but eventually I got the diagnosis. I was treated by a uh, psychiatrist who had an expertise in women's mood and hormones, and she put me on a very easy to follow, very specific medication regimen. I took a week of antidepressants right before my period, and for many years that worked great. It was life altering. I mean, it was amazing. There I was, one month, didn't know what to do, cycling uncontrollably. The next month, popping a pill and feeling much better. But then, of course, I got older. And when you hit your 40s, when you're a woman, you enter into this protracted period of perimenopause, which isn't menopause when you stop getting your period, but it's kind of like the buildup to that. And there's one, so little literature oh, on it. Yeah. I thought you just like some one day you stopped getting your period. I didn't know that for years I would get two periods a month, three periods a month, no periods, skip a bunch, get one, skip four, get another one. You know, it was just completely unpredictable and crazy. So your mood is fluctuating madly because your hormones are fluctuating madly. And my specific medication regimen required me to know exactly when I was going to get my period and I didn't know anymore. And that catalyzed this kind of mood disaster. I became very, very depressed, but my kind of depression is an activated depression. So it's not like I crawled into bed and went to sleep. I was still very productive, but I was very quick to anger, very irritable. I was very difficult to live with. And I would get into these spirals where I would be horrible to the people in my family, and then I would feel shame and depressed, and I ultimately became suicidal. Before I began the microdosing experiment, I had left the place of ideation and was more into a kind of more planning phase. At one point, I was standing in front of my medicine cabinet kind of evaluating its contents to see what was the most dangerous drug in it. Spoiler alert, Tylenol. I have a lot of stuff in my medicine cabinet, but that is a dangerous drug. And that's when I decided to try this crazy thing that's illegal, Schedule 1. I decided to try microdosing with LSD. T tell us how you did that. You you met James Fadiman. I reached out to James Fadiman. I He's an old-time researcher on psychoactive drugs, the 60s. Yeah, 60s, 60s. He, yes. was, he, he was at Stanford. He and a couple of other people had a study specifically designed to evaluate the effects of LSD on creative problem solving. Fadiman and his colleagues invited these 28 engineers, architects, people in the sort of beginnings of the computer industry. Because this was like 1966, right? Right, yes. Right All before LSD was illegal. Right. They said to these 
people, bring a problem. You're, we're, not, we're not inviting you here to see God. We're asking you to bring you know, a math problem, an engineering problem, a design problem, something that you've had really a hard time figuring out. Bring your intractable problem to this experience, and we'll see what happens. And so these people came in, and they got dosed with LSD, and the researchers watched them. And what was remarkable is that many of them not only solved their problems, but went on to have these profound insights into their work. Very few of them had kind of spiritual awakenings. The study was, he said, to bring in two problems that you have been unable to solve for one reason right. or another. exactly. And it then, directed it yeah, to problem solving. Because this, it was all about yeah. sort of set and setting. It was like intention, right? You know, that stupid thing they say before you do your yoga. Having the intention to solve your problem actually resulted in some number of these individuals solving their problems, going on to file patents and, and create in some cases, companies based on these. Then, of course, that research was shut down, and Fatima describes it. He says that he had just dosed a subject group. The LSD was about to hit, and they get this letter informing them that their specific permit was going to be rescinded. And so he looks at the letter, and he looks at his colleague, and he says, I think we got this letter tomorrow. But, you know, it was really a shame that that research was shut down because I think what we're seeing now with this resurgence of interest in LSD and particularly microdosing, which are, to define it for your audience, a microdose is a small dose, a dose that's too small to elicit any perceptual effects, but so sub-psychedelic, nootropic, but it's large enough to have metabolic effects. So in a sense, we're looking for something that can act in a way that you almost don't notice. If I had slipped it into your coffee right now, you would not know that you were microdosing, except at the end of the day, after our interview, after the rest of your work, you might go home and think, huh, that was a really good day. Okay, so so, so I know he's written I a book. Yes, which is he's written a book, a Psychedelic and Spiritual Journeys. So, but, but that's not the kind of book that I'm likely to read because I'm not a particularly psych- psychedelic person. That's what spiritual makes this book person. so great is you're I'm, not no, that kind I'm of like person. No, I'm very practical. I was raised by atheist parents whose atheism was as dogmatic as a Hasidic Jew's Judaism. <laughs> I mean, we were, my parents raised me to have disgust for religion and for spirituality of all kinds, which I struggle with. You know, I'm trying to overcome. We all try to overcome the biases of our parents. So I'm I'm looking on the internet. I'm in this place of profound depression and hedonia, and I see this talk that Jim is giving, and he talks about microdosing, and he says that at the end of the day, people report that they had a really good day. And I felt like I had been hit in the head with a mallet. Like a real, like it was all I wanted. A really good one, really good. Forget really good. I just wanted a good day. I wanted a day where I didn't feel this kind of sense of despair and inability to take pleasure in my family and my husband and my marriage and my surroundings. And so I reached out to him and he is the most loving, generous man I mean, look, I'm a person with daddy issues. I get that. I have a, a very typical, my father's much older than my mother. and You talk about this in the book. Yeah, I he was 40 when I was born, so he was older, which in the 60s, that was really old. But he was a very uninvolved father, and he also had his own mood disorder. So he was. it's hard to live with a parent with a mood disorder, as my children can likely attest. Dr. Fadiman's generosity, his warmth, his his willingness to talk on the phone with me for hours about my issues, about my problems, about you know what I tried was really it was an it was a novel experience for it's me. It's what you wanted. Yeah, in in a, in a, in a way. Father. My dad and I have known one another's mood disorders forever and we have literally never spoken about it once. So one day I'm uh, visiting my parents and my father comes out of this room, this kind of junk room, and he hands me this stack of micro cassette tapes and he says, "Here, 
do something with these. They're tapes of my psychotherapy sessions from the 80s. So I have this pile of tapes of my dad's therapy. And for years, I just couldn't even look at them. I was just like, ugh. You know, you want to tell me how you're feeling? Just talk to me. But then eventually, I actually did a whole story for This American Life about these tapes because I did eventually listen to them, hoping for great, profound insight and got nothing. But what you did get, it's so hilarious. It's a history of communism. Yes. <laughs> All my dad will ever talk to you about is like the history of Zionism, the history of communism, Stalin's five-year plan. Like seriously, anything you want to know about Stalin's agrarian policy. And so I, I put in the tape, you know, what I really wanted to hear is I love my daughter. I was expecting to hear insights into his problematic relationship with his children, his terrible marriage, all that stuff. But what I ended up getting was, let me tell you a little about Stalin's five-year plan. Yeah, I mean, he right. and his therapist just sat and talked about that for hours. Hours at a time. You know, you talk about how you don't get so worked up about these very issues you just mentioned about your father. You're more circumspect. What are during that thirty days? I certainly was during those thirty days. I had a capacity for equanimity that I had not had before. I had a resurgence in my ability to enjoy beauty, my family, to feel love, to feel connected to the world. Um, I was less irritable. I didn't less judgmental. Less judgmental. I didn't lash out. It was really like cognitive behavioral therapy in a pill. You know, I'd been in cognitive behavioral therapy. I'd been in all these treatment modalities, and they just hadn't worked because I couldn't make myself do them. And with the LSD, I was more receptive, and I was more able to do that work that was necessary to maintain my mood. I also, incidentally, and, you know, this harkens back to Jim's work in the 60s, I was more productive way more productive. This was not hypomania. This was like sit down, get to work, focus, make interesting connections, which is again not a surprise. We know that large doses of LSD, sort of more typical doses, cause different parts of your brain that don't normally communicate to communicate in new ways. And they I want to talk about that, yeah. the default the mode, mode network. network. Yes. Yeah, so, so the default mode network I mean, in the most simplistic way, this is that part, that like rut that you are in your head that tells you to react in certain ways. And it's kind of that directive mode. That was the voice in my head that told me I was worthless and I was useless. I was unlovable. And it was a very old, very familiar set of reactions and patterns patterns and thoughts and beliefs. And, you know, the brain develops patterns. It's what the brain likes to do. And LSD in a large dose takes your default mode network offline. It allows new patterns to form and old patterns to be kind of exploded. I'm too afraid to do an LSD trip. I'm still too afraid. But in microdoses, based on my experiment and based on all of my reading and and based on the research I've done on the neurochemistry of LSD and on the anecdotal evidence of many, many, many people who've now been microdosing, is that a similar function seems to occur with regular microdosing. It doesn't take the default mode network offline, but it allows you to develop new thought patterns and new ways of reacting. It takes you out of those traditional unproductive reflexes. And that's the neuroplasticity yeah, that, of the brain. You know, neuroplasticity means, you know, the way that your brain grows and changes. You want a neuroplastic brain. A neuroplastic brain is a good brain. Babies' brains, very neuroplastic. Old ladies' brains, old dudes' brains, less neuroplastic. You want your brain to change and grow and to constantly be be able to think in new ways. And So and you can teach an old dog new tricks yeah, with microdosing. As an old dog. Look, I always resist anything that 
comes off as a panacea. Mm-hmm. You know, anytime you go to like a new age therapist who says, I'm going to work on your jaw muscles and that's going to solve your ankle pain, your back pain, your issues with your father and your flatulence problem. <laughs> See, I, I always feel like that's the sign of a charlatan. If like one thing can solve all your problems. So I, I'm very careful about making claims about microdosing. But I do think that the way that LSD and other psychedelics work on the brain holds great promise for mental illnesses that are particularly related to patterns of thinking, which, you know, a mood disorder, depression. There are studies going on now, and I'm curious where they're going to go with Jeff Sessions Uh, as our new uh, UCLA, NYU, and uh, John Hopkins. Hopkins. They're, I think, clinical stage two. Two and into three. So they did a very smart thing in in those research facilities. They said, we're going to study depression and anxiety in people with fatal illnesses confronting the end of their lives. And it's psilocybin, not LSD. Psilocybin. Not LSD. First of all, most people don't even know what psilocybin is. It's actually the psychedelic compound in magic mushrooms. But LSD, you know, LSD, ooh, everyone's scared of LSD. It has terrible connotations. Timothy Leary, Ken Kesey, you know, Summer of Love, blah, blah, blah. Psilocybin, what's that? Nobody really knows it. I, I can't spell it. I mean, yes, I'm dyslexic, but seriously, I wrote a whole book about this, and I cannot spell psilocybin <laughs> to save my life. It was easier to get permission to study psilocybin, and it's a lot easier to get permission to give a psychedelic drug or any Schedule One drug to someone who's dying anyway. So the studies were designed not because there's something unique about the depression at the end of life, but rather because that was the way that permission could be granted from the FDA and DEA. The results were have been remarkable, really remarkable. I know. They're unprecedented. Michael, Michael Pollan wrote a great article in the this. New Yorker about this. He's written this. a couple of articles. And he's coming out with a book. I said to Michael, I wonder if it's okay that like I'm my book's coming out before yours. He's like, oh, no, no, baby. You go ahead and let's see what happens first. <laughs> Mine was constructed as this experiment, and then it goes off into the research and to the law. I mean, I, I talk, I spend a lot of time talking about the law and the war on drugs, and I do want to talk about that. Let's talk about the 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 racism. I mean, there's never been a war on drugs that hasn't been race based in this country. It's all. I think the best way to think of the war on drugs is a is a war on people of color. The very first drug law in the United States was targeted at Chinese opium dens. At that point in time, there were a lot of people using opium, but the typical opium user was a white Southern woman who tippled from her laudanum bottle all day long. That's opium mixed with alcohol. People gave opium to their babies to make them sleep. You know, there were all of these medicines, patent medicines, that were opium-based. But the law targeted Chinese immigrants in opium dens. And it was really about them. It wasn't about the opium, per se. Fear of, you know, a wave of immigration. It's it's characterized as, you know, fear that they'll rape white women. But it really is just, it's financial panic. It's xenophobia. Marijuana got tied closely to Mexican-Americans. And you can see all this rhetoric at the time in the Hearst newspapers about how marijuana-crazed Mexicans were raping white women. Alcohol is closely correlated with sexual violence in our culture, but not marijuana. So again, cocaine gets tied to African-American communities, not because they used cocaine more, absolutely not, but it's a way to target and link and criminalize. You know, there were these myths that cocaine use made African-Americans, although of course at the time they said Negroes, immune to lower caliber bullets. 
So somehow, you know, snorting some cocaine would, would make a person immune to a bullet. And so that's why police departments, at least the theory is, the police departments use higher caliber guns. That became the standard. So again and again, you see the war on drug tied to criminalizing communities, communities of color. And the latest iteration of this, which began in the 60s and which I thought was ending or at least drawing to a hopeful close, was this rabid, began with Nixon, went through Reagan, amped up with Clinton, let's be very clear, targeting of communities of color with draconian prison sentences for drug crimes. So in a world where white people use drugs more than people of color, you had far more people of color being arrested and incarcerated. You know, in America, you go to jail for longer for marijuana in some cases than you go to jail for murder in Europe. I mean, our drug laws are out of control, and we saw this massive increase in incarceration rates as a result of people of color, but also women. Suddenly, you know, women had very rarely been incarcerated. The numbers were very low because women don't commit violent crimes. There's one genetic marker that you can pretty much use to evaluate the likelihood of somebody committing a violent crime, and it is the Y chromosome. The population of women in prison increased dramatically because of all these drug laws and these mandatory minimum sentences. And I thought we had started to understand that, you know, across party boundaries. I've, I've had conversations with Senator Orrin Hatch about the injustices of the mandatory minimum sentences and the over-incarceration rate. But with the election of Donald Trump in this most schizophrenic of elections, where on the one hand, there are a bunch of states that decriminalized marijuana for recreational use— Marijuana is a Schedule One drug. At the same time, we elected Donald Trump, who put in, as Attorney General the most retrograde, racist, malevolent, incompetent, cruel, and vicious white supremacist. He says he's going to go after marijuana. Yeah, that's what he's going to do. If I were in the legal cannabis business, I would be terrified. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. Do. What do you, we don't really know yet no, what but they're going to do. I but, were, but what about those clinical trials that we were just talking I about? Expect, I mean, look, Will they be shut down? I don't know. I don't know if they're flying under the radar enough, if they have DEA. You know, the results, you know, the subjects are white by and large. People are much more inclined to be sympathetic when the subjects are white. I don't know. But here is what I do know. The United States has imposed its drug policy on the world through a very aggressive campaign that involved Pax Americana, treaties, and a kind of putative moral leadership. So we've dictated to South and Central America. We've dictated to Europe. So when England, for example, began a very small but very, very effective heroin distribution program that cut overdose rates, cut crime, and also incidentally got people off heroin. But the United States put so much pressure on the British government that they shut that program down. All the people who participated in that program, most of them went on to die. So we've managed to impose our draconian prohibitionist view of drugs on the world. But the only benefit that I can see to having a Cheeto-dusted madman as our president is that we have no moral authority. We have no claim to moral authority. Portugal, which decriminalized drugs, is not going to pay any attention to what Donald Trump said. The American war on drugs has destroyed Latin America, enriched the cartels. Colombia, for a long time, was a country that was simply controlled by warring cartels. And 
people lived in this kind of state of incarceration and terror. And this was all caused by the United States war on drugs. And now countries have started to reject it. And I think that that is the one benefit of having this America first platform is mm -hmm. that the rest of the world can go on and do good because we yeah. haven't used our moral authority very well. well we spend so much money on this war on drugs. It's like up to a trillion now yeah, or I something. Mean, it's, and it's lunatic. For what? Drugs are cheaper and easier to get, which tells you that they're coming into the country more often. You're not winning a war if drugs are easier to get. You know, LSD is a non-addictive drug. In the entire history of LSD usage, there are two cases, human fatalities that have been attributed to LSD, and those are actually suspect. So basically, there's no fatal dose of LSD. There's no addiction. No addiction. But you know what's more dangerous right now is that we have a situation where we have an opioid crisis in this country. Many of the states that voted so vigorously in favor of Donald Trump are littered with bodies of people dying from opioid addiction, and that is a direct result of the failed war on drugs. If you want to treat people and save people's lives, you have to have a harm reduction approach to drug addiction, not a, not a prohibitionist approach. You have to get in there and provide services and help and safe injection sites and safe drugs. This is typically what happens. Someone gets a prescription for for OxyContin for, say, back pain, for which it is not useful. They take it, they take it, they take it, they get addicted. Then their doctor says, well, you can't have any OxyContin anymore because you're an addict. And then they don't have any OxyContin, so they go out on the street. And maybe first they try to buy some pills, and they get some. And But eventually pills are hard to find. They're harder to buy. They're more expensive. You know, it's cheap. Heroin's Heroin. cheap. You know, it's fast. Heroin's fast. Then they're a heroin addict. And then and they're criminalized. Then they're criminalized. Then they're in the underground market. Then there's no FDA checking the quality of their drugs. And now heroin is quite often cut with much stronger fentanyl hundreds of times yeah. stronger. And people are overdosing because they take an amount of drugs that they, they think is uh, heroin, but it actually turns out to be fentanyl. It is a white epidemic in many ways. There are many, many white victims, certainly the vast majority. Maybe Jeff Sessions will be willing to listen to some reason. Although, again, this is a man who said that no good person has ever smoked pot. This is a man who made a quote-unquote joke about the KKK, which he said... He right, was, until they, he found yeah, out they had smoked he pot. Was there, he was fine with them until he found out they smoked pot. I wanted to ask you about how you approach drugs in your family. You use the term harm reduction. Yes. Yeah, so we have, that may be the most radical thing in my book, not the taking of the LSD. I have four kids who range in age from 13 to 22. So these are our rules. We don't lie to our children about drugs, ever. And they know we never lie to them. We don't allow others to lie to them. So when they are given misinformation in school programs, school programs like on D.A.R.E., drugs, which for many, many years taught all of this ridiculous misinformation, it's now been improved. But, you know, it basically said to kids, you know, marijuana will kill you. And then a kid will hear that message and then think of their cousin who's a freshman at Yale and an A student and a wake-and-bake smoker. And then they reject the whole message of D.A.R.E. But anyway, they're better now. But, like... We educate our kids, we inundate them with information, and then we have some very specific rules. When it comes to pot, for example, we talk a lot about the effects of marijuana on the adolescent brain. I think there's compelling evidence that the, that, that's, that it's not great, that it, it does cause damage to developing brains in particular. But we are realistic. They live in Berkeley. There's no way they're going to wait till their frontal lobe is fully formed before they smoke pot. So after much negotiation, we reached the agreement that nobody could smoke pot till they were 15, only on the weekends. And if your grades drop at all, you are not only grounded, but I will drug test you. And you get your drug test from Amazon, right? Yes. 
I, I can test my kids' urine. I buy urine tests now. I tested my LSD from a kit that I bought on Amazon. Basically, I have a supply cabinet in my house that's full of MDMA testing kits because MDMA is the drug that I'm most concerned with right now. It, it causes your body to overheat, and if you have heart issues or high blood pressure, it's a, you shouldn't be taking it. Basically, the stupidest place to do it is like in the desert while dancing. Yes, or at a rave where there's thousands of people and it can't You don't want your body temperature to be raised. And it also does this peculiar thing. It makes you more susceptible to water toxicity. What people are selling as MDMA isn't most of the time. Kids will buy drugs and they'll think they're buying Molly and it turns out that they're buying something much more toxic. So my daughter is a student at Wesleyan University and half 11 kids I think ended up in the ER having taken something they thought was MDMA that turned out to be a synthetic called AB Fubinaca spice or K2 and it was very toxic and one of them had to be intubated and defibrillated before he um and he, he survived thankfully so I keep testing kits in my cabinet and I say to my kids those are there if you ever are inclined to take a pill and put it in your body first you have to test it to make sure that what you're taking is what you think you're taking because it is not safe to just and this has been a success in your household yes and and in fact there have been instances where pills, where people, not my own children, but others, have taken a testing kit and then reported to me that it was not, in fact, what they thought it was. I threw it away. I count that as a life save. If your kid ever overdoses on heroin, you're, you want your kid to be around my kid. Because if your kid's around a kid who hasn't had this kind of harm reduction education, what they're probably going to do is throw them in the bathtub with some cold water, maybe dump them in the parking lot of an ER, and they're going to overdose and die. My kids, they know exactly what to do. They make two phone calls. They call 911 and they say come with Narcan now we have a heroin overdose and that can cure an overdose instantaneously and they call mommy and mommy comes and deals with the legal consequences. Your last book Love and Treasure was about the Holocaust. There's a character in your memoir about your microdosing Laszlo who I think you met when you were working on Love and Treasure. Yes. That's such a beautiful story. So Laszlo, which is not his real name, is a Holocaust survivor, a Hungarian Holocaust survivor who became very wealthy in America. Very problematic relationships, difficult relationships. I'm very depressed. And he went on a an ayahuasca journey. Until I met Laszlo, I, I never understood the appeal of ayahuasca. But Laszlo had this incredible experience. He went to Latin America. I don't know where exactly. Okay, it's but he had a guide in the whole He had a guide, and it was all very safe. So his father died in the Holocaust. He and his mother survived. And he had always felt this sense of, of shame and guilt for having survived. And in a way was angry the way a child was angry at his father for not having said saying goodbye to him. And had felt, even though he knew his, well, he wasn't abandoned, that his father was murdered by the Arrow Cross and the Hungarian fascists, he still felt the sense of, you know, a child's feeling of abandonment. And he spoke to his father. And he had this incredible spiritual experience that resolved that pain for him to this day. I became obsessed with this idea of, like, did you really speak to your father? Or is it just all in your head? I mean, And when I was talking to researchers about this, they would always say to me, why is that the question you're asking? I mean, isn't the interesting question that this experience resolved his pain? And yet you're obsessed with whether it was real or not. And what do you even mean by real? And that's when, you know. Yeah, it's like look at the results instead. I have high hopes. I think microdosing is kind of, it's like training wheels, right? I mean, microdosing, for those of us who are not interested in tripping, we're talking about using a medication the way people use 
anti-anxiety medications, but it's a medication that's actually much safer, say, yes. and less addictive. My but message, it's not an option, and, and right. that's the sad thing. Right. And my message for this book is we need decriminalization and we need research, and first the research. Let's do the microdose study. At the University of South Carolina, Mike Mithoffer is doing research on MDMA and PTSD with patients who have treatment-resistant PTSD, and he has had a astonishing results, which makes sense, right? MDMA is a drug that works on memory. It disconnects traumatic memories from the trauma so that you can explore the memory without the, the traumatic feelings associated with it. And instead from a place of love and support and empathy. And empathy. The MDMA research has the tentative preliminary support of the VA because they know that soldiers are committing suicide at astronomical rates and they have to do something. So my hope is that the Pentagon and the VA will look at this research and say, we can't afford not to continue this. You know, my husband and I have used MDMA at the suggestion of Sasha and Ann Shulgin. Sasha was, was a chemist, a local Berkeley chemist, who was famous for bioassaying different drugs, or synthesizing drugs and then taking them on him, himself to sort of assess their effects. And though he wasn't the first person to synthesize MDMA, that honor goes to Merck. He um, was one of the first people to try it. On himself, but um, my husband and I have used MDMA as a marital therapy tool, which is what we, it was initially used as as a therapeutic tool, and it's very profound and very effective, and it co allows us to sort of discuss the problems of our in our relationship in a supportive and loving way. So I've been doing a lot of events around the country, and at every event there are a bunch of people who come up and tell me they're microdosing, and they say it loud and they say it proud, and they're not ashamed, and they're microdosing with LSD or psilocybin, and that's great. And then there are a bunch of people who come up to me and they ask to speak to me privately and they confess with great shame and embarrassment that they have a mental illness. And the idea that in our society, you don't need to be ashamed about using illegal drugs, but you need to be ashamed about being mentally ill. That's heartbreaking. And that's something we need to change. So that's one of the things that I, as a person with a mental illness, feel like it is my job to be public because this is not something to be ashamed of, and I won't allow others to experience that shame. Okay. We're running out of time, and I wanted to ask you what is next on your plate. Well, I owe a novel to my publisher. I'm working on a, a TV show that's it's based on a true story, but it's, an, it's narrative. It's not documentary. And it's basically about why we don't believe women who have been raped, even when they do everything right. And I'm working on another TV show about the first women combat soldiers in uh, legal combat soldiers in United States military history, Team Lioness, in the Iraq War. And because I feel like now for the next four to eight to forever years, the work that I do has to have meaning and it has to have greater purpose. And I'm trying to figure out what that means for me right now. If somebody has a question about your oh, sure. book. They can go to or... my website, which is com, and there's lots of resources there. There's lots of articles about the research, and I have lots of resources for people with mental health issues, and I have lots of articles about the drug war, all sorts of things, Twitter, Facebook, email, and Great. I'm easy to reach. was Ayelet Waldman, novelist, essayist, former federal public defender and criminal defense lawyer. We've been talking about her new book, A Really Good Day, How Microdosing Made a Mega Difference in My Mood, My Marriage, and My Life. You've been listening to Method to the Madness. We'll be back next Friday at noon.